Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the BYU Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight. And I'm Austin Lambert. Our mission here at the Life Science Museum is to inspire wonder, understanding, and reverence for our evolving planet. So with this podcast, we are here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community. Visit our website, lsm.byu.edu, for more information and to access notes from each episode. Today we are joined by Dr. Arden Pope, a Mary Lou Fulton Professor of Economics at Brigham Young University. Dr. Pope has been teaching at BYU since 1984. His early education and research interests were in economics, econometrics, and statistics applied to agricultural, natural resource, and environmental issues. In the late 1980s, he began conducting studies on health effects of air pollution. Since then, he's conducted or collaborated on many key national and international studies, providing evidence that breathing air pollution contributes to cardiopulmonary and cancer morbidity and mortality. Dr. Pope is one of the world's most cited and recognized researchers on the health effects of air pollution. Dr. Pope has been married to Rhonda Nighting Pope for 44 years, and together they have seven children and 21 grandchildren. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we, are, we are pleased to have you here with us, Dr. Pope. Today we want to focus on air pollution and, and along with what you've studied, the health effects that it brings to us. Um, we know pollution is common throughout the world, and I think anyone who lives in Salt Lake or Utah Valley is very familiar with it. Uh, but maybe first we can just start on how you got into researching the effects of air pollution on health. Yeah, well, it was almost by accident. I was uh, here at BYU. I was teaching natural resource environmental economics, a class in one of our one of our advanced courses in it, and it required a term paper. And I had a, a student, a young woman in the class, that asked me, "Can you think of a topic that would be interesting?" And it turned out that this was shortly after Geneva Steel had shut down and then reopened, and so there was a lot of discussion about how, mu- how much cleaner it was when the steel mill was not operating. And uh, so I told her, that'd be a very, that's a very interesting natural experiment. Why don't I help you get some data from the local hospitals and let's look retrospectively and see if pediatric respiratory hospital admissions seem to be affected by this closure of the steel mill when it shut down for 13 months and, and then reopened. I got the data from the hospitals, but she ended up dropping out of the class. So I just had it sitting there on my desk, <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm going to enter the data into my computer. This was back before there were these electronic transfers and things. Right. It was just it was just on these, these data. Uh, so you had to type it in. <laughs> literally had to type it in, yeah. <laughs> so I typed it in, did some brief analysis on it, and it was just stunning what you could see there that uh, – Pediatric respiratory hospital admissions were about half as high as they were when the mill was operating. The, the air pollution dropped by about half when the mill was shut down. When it reopened, it went right back up. And a, a similar sort of thing happened with uh, pediatric respiratory hospital admissions. So I published that paper. Uh, when, it, when it came out, there was a lot of controversy about it. Uh, the steel mill obviously wasn't happy about it. But it, it did motivate additional research. Uh, I did some other analyses looking at uh, not just Utah Valley, but Salt Lake Valley and Cache Valley. 
and uh, then we did some some panel studies. Uh, actually, enrolled children that had asthma, and and uh, looked at the effects of air pollution on them in terms of lung function and in terms of uh, respiratory uh, symptoms. And uh, you know, as you did more studies, you'd answer questions, but it also uh, result in asking more questions. So. Right. Uh, what started out as sort of this little hobby project, just taking the data that uh, I'd, I'd requested for this student and uh, ended up doing a lot of air pollution research over the last several decades. I, shortly after I'd done some of that work, I, w- I began working with a, a research team at Harvard. I ended up going out there for a time and working with them on a couple of other really interesting studies. One's referred to as the Harvard Six Cities study and another study uh, called the American Cancer Society study. Uh, these studies were extremely interesting and important because they looked at not just sort of short-term changes in air pollution, but the impacts of air pollution over years or decades. And uh, what we found is that air pollution really contributed to increased risk of not just respiratory disease in children, but both respiratory and cardiovascular disease in children and in adults. So at any rate, that's sort of how I got started. And So would you say that's your main focus in research, or do you do other things as well? So early on I did other things, uh, and, and occasionally I do other things even now, but it's been my main focus. I've done some recent studies looking at uh, physical activity, at uh, body mass index, and, and some other things, we're actually looking at, at greenness and, and its impact on health. But the focus of my research has been largely on the effects of the health effects of air pollution. Okay, cool. And earlier you mentioned that you're good friends with a former director of the museum, Dr. St. Clair. Yeah. Larry St. Clair. Um, and he's a, he's he, a fantastic person. He's <laughs> just, he and his wife are the greatest. Yeah, he, I know he taught biology 100 to thousands of students here. Yeah. Um, but he studied air pollution through lichens. It, is there any relation for your research and his research? Did you guys ever collaborate, or was it just kind of interesting that you're both kind of studying air pollution in different ways? So when I first started doing this research, um, I, I was actually over in the what's now called the Life Sciences College, and I knew Larry even way back then. And uh, I knew of his work. I respected his work a lot. Uh, he was very supportive of my work. He'd been around the university a bit longer. I remember shortly after the results of this first study came out, and there was a lot of controversy and a lot of problems, and... Uh, we actually ended up holding a press conference to, uh, which, which, by the way, I've only done twice in my whole career, but that was <laughs> one of the times. And we ended up holding a press conference because Geneva Steele had brought out a person to try to refute the results of the research. But I, I remember asking Larry. I don't remember exactly why we were together at the time, but he, but he was he was a, a, a very kind and helpful supporter. I asked him, well, what? You know, give me some advice as to what I should say in the in the press conference. He said, "Well, he said the most important thing is to be sure to keep it simple." Mm. And, and uh, so I said, "Well, okay. What do you mean by keep it simple?" And he said, "Well, just tell him that this other researcher that Geneva still brought in just say that he's got it wrong." 
<laughs> so I remember I went in and, and kind of went through the history of the research and, and, and in the press conference sort of explained it a bit. But then I stopped. I say, but I do want to make it very clear that so-and-so has got it wrong. <laughs> and, and I can remember that was the headline of the next paper. Uh, you know, <laughs> the headline was, Johns Hopkins Research has it wrong, or so, I can't remember exactly <laughs> what it said. So, so it was very, very helpful advice from Larry back then. Not only was his research excellent, but his judgment in terms of how to, to deal with controversial issues. Um, yeah, I would Larry, agree. He was a great example. He's very diplomatic in that way, yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting that you're talking about, I guess, the opposition that you faced when you publish uh, this research, that perhaps the, the research surprised you it by, did. by how clear it was. How else have you been able to, I guess, respond to objections to findings that you've had? So the answer to that is actually relatively easy for me. Because rarely would I actually contend with any of these folks. Um, almost always what I tried to do in response is, is just do more research, do more and better research, and try to understand really what's going on. I actually took the critics of the research seriously. Not always. Sometimes their arguments really were nonsensical. But often the arguments were something that really should be taken seriously. So, uh, so for example, that first study, uh, the argument was is the reason we saw these effects were just due to coincidental epidemics of respiratory syncytial virus. So it was unlikely because we had, we had looked at some of those issues already, but we seriously looked at to see if there were coincidental epidemics of, of anything, not just RSV, but, but any other infectious disease going on at the time. And then, of course, there were concerns about this wasn't really due to the sort of particle pollution coming from the steel mill, but it was really due to aerosol acidity. So we did a series of studies focused on aerosol acidity. And then, of course, over time, well, maybe this is just due to coincidental correlations with weather variables that are causing effects. And so, of course, you spend a lot of time trying to design studies that can account for that. And then... Well, I mean, I could go on and on. So rather than sort of directly engage and do any name-calling or anything like that, the most important thing to do in science is take legitimate concerns seriously and try to design studies, analyses that will actually address those concerns. And in fact, uh, a number of concerns, as we address them, it substantially improved the quality of the research as we went on. So as, as people bring up questions about your understanding of the science, you're able to actually then increase your understanding by doing further studies. Absolutely. Yeah, just do, do more studies, do better studies, uh, do analyses that really address some of the concerns. And uh, the other thing you have to do is be patient. I mean, this, is, th this, this doesn't happen overnight. This takes years, even decades or more, to really understand some of these complicated uh, scientific questions. So as you've then studied and, and helped, I guess, this scientific understanding of, of air pollution advance, uh, where was it at before your first publication? Well, prior to me becoming involved, and I don't want to take credit for what's been happening because there's been a lot of really excellent researchers, 
prior to me becoming involved in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, basically we were relying on early what's called episode studies, studies from Meuse Valley, Belgium, and Denora, Pennsylvania, and London during the 1952 episode. And we knew from those episodes that high concentrations of air pollution contributes to disease and death. That was pretty well understood. And by the way, the United States and the United Kingdom and, and, and other places in the world made public policy efforts to try to clean up the air, to improve the air quality. And much of those public policy efforts were designed really to avoid the so-called killer smogs, these really bad episodes that clearly impact human health. But then what, we, then what the question really became was, is what, well, what about sort of lower levels of air pollution, sort of moderate levels of air pollution that were common throughout many cities throughout the United States and throughout the world? So, for example, air pollution that we were experiencing here along the Wasatch Front and associated with here in Utah County with Geneva Steel. And what we very quickly began to learn is that air pollution, even at these lower concentrations, can contribute to substantial adverse health outcomes. And, and of course, what that meant is we still had a lot of work to do uh, as a matter of public policy, as a matter of industry, as a matter of, of local communities, and even, even national uh, environmental policy to try to clean up our air so we don't get adverse health outcomes that are pretty general, both respiratory and cardiovascular disease amongst the broad population. Are you able to quantify uh, the effects, like how many people on average will get uh, cardiovascular disease because of air pollution? Are there attempts in the research to, to ab- quantify that? So ab- absolutely. Based on the original Harvard Six City study and the ACS study, and then based on a series of other studies that tried to replicate those or reproduce those results, we began to learn uh, approximately what the increase in adverse health outcomes would, would occur due to increases in air pollution. Then there's been a very, very large effort, one, one effort in particular that's called the Global Burden of Disease, and it basically tries to look at various risk factors that impact burden of disease globally, so things like obesity, tobacco smoking, and various things, and also uh, air pollution. And so if you take the results of the research that, that I have conducted and many of my colleagues have conducted, Uh, over the last 25, 30 years, and you apply those uh, what we call exposure response functions to the level of exposure that we have around the world and the populations exposed to it, the estimates are that about 4.5 million people each year across the world die due to exposure to air pollution. So air pollution contributes to about 4.5 million deaths per year, which, by the way, makes it up there in the top 10, maybe as high as the top five risk factors contributing to global burden of disease. This has turned out to be a a stunning finding. We now know with high confidence that exposure to air pollution throughout the world is a, a very important, significant contributor to both respiratory and cardiovascular disease deaths, and really also uh, lung cancer deaths. 
uh, a recent report came out now estimates that that air pollution is the second leading cause of of lung cancer and that's probably true that's based also on a number of studies that that i've been doing and it's where we've focused on cancer and air pollution we asked on social media uh if our followers and listeners had questions for you and we actually had several responses asking about uh, the effects specifically here in Utah Valley or Salt Lake Valley. Do you know what the, the quantifiable effect of air pollution is for Utah Valley? So the answer is, is you can do a back. So there's been no specific publication focused on Utah Valley or just the Wasatch Front. Now, we've done a lot of studies of looking at the health effects uh, specific health effects along the Wasatch Front. So, for example, we have uh, uh, several studies where we've looked at ischemic heart disease, so, so things like uh, heart attacks. And um, we know that air pollution contributes to heart attacks and, and, and other ischemic heart disease along the Wasatch Front. We know that air pollution contributes to increased hospitalizations for uh, uh, respiratory disease, we know, we just published a paper recently, that air pollution increases the risk of, of being hospitalized for respiratory syncytial virus and other viral infections. And in fact, it's interesting, you know, that almost is going full circle back to that very, very first study where we saw RSV uh, being increased associated with air pollution. It turns out that we are now beginning to understand how and why. We have a number of studies that have looked at uh, children's uh, you know, school absences amongst children, and we know that children get more ill and are absent from school more when there's more air pollution. So we, there's, there's sort of a, a range of studies that have been done in Utah that make it very, very clear that we get these sort of health effects uh, from air pollution. Now, to try to aggregate all of that and give you some sort of a summary statistic or summary value of how bad the air pollution is hurting us all, I don't have that. That hasn't been done. Uh, it's certainly not as bad as northern India, for example. Right. So in northern India, many, many of the cities there, in fact, I've spent time in northern India uh, giving lectures on this and working with people on this, their air pollution in many of their cities averages around 100 micrograms per cubic meter, the PM 2.5, whereas here in, along the Wasatch Front, we're about a tenth of that. So we can feel grateful that our air pollution isn't, isn't as bad as it could be, and we also can feel grateful that we can still make improvements with regards to our air pollution that will also help in terms of our public health. I mean, it's interesting to think you've talked about the effects that we've seen in Utah Valley or the Wasatch Front, and then just to, to think about how much worse it is other places, when yeah. our air pollution really doesn't compare to some of these other places. That's right. Uh, the air pollution is way worse in other places, in many other places. What we have in Utah Valley, and, and this is true basically along the Wasatch Front, what we have is sort of moderately polluted air on average. But what we do get is episodes of, of especially bad air, okay? Now, we've, we've seen some of those episodes recently with the, 
with with, with the wood smoke mm-hmm. uh, from the from the forest fires, but we also see it in the winters during our temperature inversions. And some of my earliest studies were actually using the remarkably interesting and unique uh, opportunity that we have along the Wasatch fronts to use these temperature inversions and the variability and exposure that we get to then look at the health effects that come from that exposure. It turns out the Wasatch Front has been an excellent place to look at the uh, temporal variability in exposure and its association with temporal variability in various uh, health health outcomes such as respiratory hospitalizations, uh, risk of uh, heart disease, that kind of thing. So... So when it comes to to the air pollution, and, and sometimes it's unavoidable to be, I guess, in the inversion, especially here on the Wasatch Front, uh, we had several people ask, what, what can we do then to both protect ourselves from the air pollution and as well, what can we do to, to help try and prevent it from being as bad as it can get? With regards to what can we do to reduce our exposure to air pollution. So the first thing you do is never smoke. Don't smoke. And stay away from secondhand smoke. That's a way we get exposed to air pollution in a fairly substantial way in in many cases. Now, I know here along the Wasatch Front and, of course, our BYU audience, smoking isn't such a, a big topic. But around the world, don't smoke, period. The other thing to do is try to avoid high concentrations of air pollution when you can. Now, that means indoor air pollution, too. So, so don't burn incense. Make sure that you have well-vented uh, space heating in your homes and that sort of thing. When you're outdoors, I basically don't exercise outdoors without taking some precautions. So, for example, I never exercise running or biking along busy streets because when you exercise your inhalation rate goes up your exposure to the air pollution goes up and exercising near point sources such as busy streets is not a wise thing to do during temperature inversions i like to do my exercise up above the inversion so i actually live on a bench in springville in the winter, for example, during a temperature version, I like to put on my snowshoes. In a few minutes, I can get up above the inversion. And then the other thing we need to do as individuals, and this is extremely important, and that is, is we must support responsible public policy efforts to clean up our air. We share the same air, air sheds. We share them. And so it's not just our own individual responsibility. It's our responsibility as a community to come together and say there are some sort of activities that we're not going to, you know, activities that contribute a large amount to the, to the air pollution, we need to reduce those or not, or, or not be part of those. And it, it's just a fundamental reality that we cannot clean up our air without having a public policy response. And so we should be supportive of those uh, reasonable efforts to clean up our air. What's the most effective way to do that? How do you support those? I think it's going to be different for various people. But, of course, part of what I have done is dedicated a big chunk of my professional life to trying to understand this so we can, we can be highly informed about what we do. 
Others might be uh, atmospheric engineers and be trying to do it on, the, on that basis. Others may be more political and be trying to deal with it using various public policy approaches. Now, the kind of public policy approaches that, that work are regulation. Most economists, and I'm trained as an economist, are not particularly fond of most regulatory approaches, but that is the approach we've used in the United States primarily is, is regulatory approaches. But there are also various approaches that we call Pigouvian taxes or these, these sort of approaches to try to internalize the externalities of air pollution such that we don't have to have regulation, such that the price incentives will be right, that we make personal choices that make sense for us. And then, of course, we should be supportive of general standards of air quality. We should say we expect our air quality as a matter of public policy standards that our air quality should be so clean. And that our ultimate goal should be about five micrograms per cubic meter on average. That would mean that we need to be cutting the air pollution along the Wasatch Front about half of what it is right now. I'm not saying that's going to be easy, an easy thing to do, but I think we all should be supportive of that goal and responsible efforts, public policy, as well as individual efforts to do that. Yeah, I think that's all practical things that, that individuals can do uh, to try and really impact their whole community. I think that's an important thing to remember when it comes to air pollution is it isn't just an individual you know, individuals are affected, but it really is this community aspect. And it doesn't always affect different communities proportionally. The things that I do or the things that a factory that uh, is in our community produces, if it's producing air pollution, it can affect other places as well. So I feel like air pollution is beyond a lot of borders and boundaries. It's It's a worldwide problem that we all have to deal with. So that was the shocking thing about that very first study that got me involved with this. That, and that was this natural experiment of Geneva Steel shutting down and then reopening. And it was a shocker that one specific source could have such a big impact both on the air pollution and on our public health. And, it, and, and of course, we need to be wise about what we do. And here's one of the most important things to remember. We in the United States have reduced our air pollution substantially since the Clean Air Act, or at least the Clean Air Act amendments of 1970 and and the establishment of the EPA then. Now, I'm not saying we've done this perfectly. We've made a lot of mistakes. But over over time, we have reduced our air pollution in the the aggregate quite a lot, maybe by, by some estimates, maybe by as much as 70%. Did it destroy our economy? No. It contributed to the growth in our economy. The reality is, is having clean air is an economic good. It's something that benefits us, not only our health, not only our well-being, but producing that public good actually contributes to our economy. So while we've seen a reduction in our air pollution, We've seen substantial growth in our economy. Here in Utah Valley, our economy has just continued to grow and continued to grow, even as we've tried to be more careful about allowing uh, polluting activities to occur. So it's not just Geneva Steel. It shut down. It's no longer a major polluter, obviously. But BYU, for example, 
It had coal-fired power as well. And uh, I don't know exactly what all's happened, but I think that's pretty much now... It's gone. Gone, right? We are responsible members of the community. We should be doing what we can to reduce our contribution to the pollution as well as insist as a community that we all do it as a matter of public policy. The bottom line is, is all of those issues still can use more study and more understanding. But the fundamental issue, does air pollution contribute substantially to respiratory and cardiovascular disease, has largely been answered, and it's yes. But more importantly, that threshold issue is interesting because that helps us ask the question, or at least answer this question. If we reduce our pollution even more along the Wasatch Front, Will we continue to get additional benefits? And the answer is yes, we will. Just that last little statement there that you made, it, it went from this is a major problem and it's definitely happening to we can make a difference. There was like some optimism there that mm-hmm. even though this is happening and it's a real problem, we, we can make a difference with all the things that you mentioned earlier. So, so that's probably a good way to end this because it's very, very easy to think about this as all kind of gloom and doom negative research. In fact, it's just the opposite. In medicine, you're always looking for some cause of disease, some risk factor for disease that you can control. And that's how we improve our health is control those risk factors. Well, air pollution is a risk factor that contributes substantially to to disease that we can control. We can actually make us better off. I published a paper with a couple of colleagues uh, in, in 2009, I think it was, in the New England Journal of Medicine. The question in that paper was, is over a two-decade period, basically the 1980s and 1990s, where we cleaned up our air pollution in many cities throughout the United States quite a lot. And the question was, is did that cleanup in the United States, and especially the cities that cleaned up the most, did that have a big impact on our health? And we specifically looked at life expectancy. So we did this, uh, we looked at differential changes in reductions in air pollution and differential improvements in life expectancy, did a very, very high quality analysis on that. And what did we find? approximately 25% of the increase in life expectancy that occurred during that two-decade period resulted from one medical intervention, and that was the reduction of air pollution. Oh, so cool. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. So, so if you, when you think of it that way, this is this very important to understand. What impacts our health? There are three things that really impact our health. I'll even add another one. But one is what do we eat? The quality of our food, the amount and quality of our food, the amount and quality of our water, and the quality of our air. So what we eat, what we drink, and what we breathe substantially impacts our health. Now, there's a few other things as well, but, but that's what cigarette smoking is all about, is what we breathe. Air pollution is about what we breathe. Clean water uh, we get sort of used to having clean water around here, but, but, but foul, dirty water is a massive contributor to, to ill health. And inadequate and unhealthy food is a problem. 
what we breathe, what we eat, and what we drink really impacts our health. And we can impact the quality of what the air we breathe, the quality of the food we eat, and the quality of the water that we drink. And by doing so, we can substantially improve our health. And that's all great news. It's like finding a pill that will make us a whole bunch healthier, but we don't have to take the pill. All we have to do is breathe cleaner air. I love it. It's just the things that we take into our bodies, right? That's right. Food, water, and air. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Pope. And, and it's good to know that as individuals and as a community, we can come together and, and uh, help everyone live healthier and better lives. Thank you. Take Thanks care. Thanks for coming.